It's my absolute pleasure to be chairing this session titled The End of Growth. Before we get started, there's just a little bit of housekeeping uh, we need to go through. Uh, please keep your mobile phones on silent, and if you do wish to tweet, which I encourage you to do, um, please use the hashtag FODI. I also want to mention, I don't usually sound like Marge Simpson. It's a product of all the pollen in the air, so... <laughs> Sorry. Um, now, there will be time for Q&A at the end of the session. Uh, there are two microphones in the room. There will be one over here on the corner here, and there will be one just upstairs. So if you do have a question, I encourage you to, to actually come to the microphones. Um, stand, stand in line and just wait your turn. And, uh, and also, can you please keep your questions succinct and short so that everyone has a chance to be heard? So, to today's session, which is obviously very popular. Uh, the issue of growth has been much talked about in the media. We hear about growth in China, growth in Australia, the lack of growth in the United States, and of course in Europe. And when globalisation and capitalism are predicated on continuous and exponential growth, what does it mean for us to see the end of that growth? Well, hopefully our esteemed speaker, Richard Heinberg, will be able to shed some light on this and challenge our perceptions. Richard is a senior fellow in residence at the Post Carbon Institute and the author of 10 books. He's written extensively about growth, and I would like you to join me in welcoming Richard to the stage. Thank you for that warm welcome. Well, when we speak about economic growth, what are we talking about? Generally, we're talking about growth in GDP, gross domestic product. Uh, GDP is essentially the total amount of money we spend in a national economy on an annual basis. And it's, it's a good stand-in for consumption when GDP goes up consumption goes up, and vice versa. Now, most economists would tell you that economic growth has been going on for a very long time. It's always a good thing, and we can anticipate much more economic growth in the future. I'm going to challenge each of those assumptions over the course of these, these next few minutes, and I want to start with the one that says economic growth has been going on for a very long time. Actually, as this graph shows, if you look back over the past few centuries, you see that even though empires have risen and fallen, GDP per capita barely budged until we get just to the last 200 years. Now, these last 200 years have been really an extraordinary ride in a number of ways because also we see that human population has grown from under 1 billion to over 7 billion today. Again, in just 200 years, that's an, that's an extraordinary and completely unprecedented rate of growth. A third trend that we see in, the, in just the last uh, couple of hundred years is increase in energy consumption. And I'm going to argue in just a couple of minutes that this last of the three trends is key, that cheap energy has driven economic growth 
And it's the lack of cheap energy that may cause us to turn the corner. Okay, now I want to pay homage here to the authors of this book, The Limits to Growth. It was published in 1972. I was 21 years old at the time. I read this book and it changed my life. I realized for the first time that the world was on an unsustainable path. It was, of course, the, a report of a, a group of scientists at uh, Massachusetts Institute for Technology that, uh, who, who used computers to model the likely interactions between population growth, resource depletion, and pollution. Their standard run scenario showed a peak and decline in world industrial output sometime in the first half of the 21st century. Now, this report was immediately vilified by many economists who believed that economic growth was necessary and that there were no limits to it. Interestingly enough, uh, the CSIRO did a retrospective analysis of the Limits to Growth report in 2008, and this is what they concluded, that effectively, we're right on track. So, good job. <laughs> I, I want to unpack this Limits to Growth scenario a little bit in, in up-to-date contemporary terms using these three factors, energy, debt, and climate. Now, you notice debt is something that wasn't addressed in the 1972 report. They didn't look at the financial system and its, its, uh, uh, its contribution to global economic activity. But I, as we've learned over the past four years, this is something we can't ignore. So let's, let's start with energy. Uh, and I... I said at the outset that energy is key. Well, why is that? It's because without energy, nothing happens. Many conventional economists will say that energy is 10% of the economy because we spend 10% of GDP on energy. But really, that, that doesn't capture it because if the energy switches off, if the lights go off, if the petrol pumps run dry, then the economy doesn't decline by 10%. The economy goes away. We have depended upon energy since, since we've been human and before. Energy enables us to do everything that we do. And up until the Industrial Revolution, we were using renewable energy sources in various forms, but there were limits to what we could do. With the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we had developed certain basic technologies. We, we developed metallurgy and gears and a simple heat engine. And the ability to extract first coal and then oil and natural gas. And as we did so, all hell broke loose. Think of it this way. Maybe you've had the experience of running out of petrol in your car and having to push your car off to the side of the road. That's, that's a bit of hard work, right? Uh, even if you're just pushing your car only a couple of meters. But imagine pushing your car for kilometer after kilometer after kilometer. That would really be a lot of work, right? Well, how much? It turns out that a single liter of petrol contains about as much energy as you would expend working hard for maybe three or four weeks. Let's say a month, just to use a round number. 
So a month's work for, how much are you paying for petrol right now? A little less than $1.50 or right around $1.50. A month's hard labor for $1.50, you can't get labor that cheap anywhere in the world. And of course, that's why we've mechanized every process of production and transport that we possibly could over the course of the last few decades, and that has given us enormous economic growth. When you hear about labor productivity, that doesn't mean people working longer hours and working harder. In most instances, it means people using more fuel-fed machines. Well, oil is the most economically critical of the fossil fuels because virtually all of our transport energy comes from oil. But oil is also a finite resource, as we've discovered in my country, the United States, over the course of the last, last century. Uh, the U.S. is where the oil industry got its start in 1859, and it's, it's hard to imagine today. Of course, today the U.S. is by far the world's foremost oil-importing co country. But in the early 20th century, the U.S. was the world's biggest exporter of oil, by far, now, oil discoveries in the U.S. hit a peak and started to decline all the way back in 1930. Forty years after, in 1970, U.S. oil production began to decline. Now, this is the template. This is what we have been seeing and will see in every oil-producing nation. And in fact, many other former oil exporters like Indonesia and Great Britain are now oil importing nations. Actual world uh, oil discoveries have been declining since about 1964. So it's not just a couple of years bad luck. This is a long-standing trend. Actual world oil production has been stagnant since 2005. Now if you add in some other liquid fuels like biofuels and uh, propane, butane, and so on, you can see a little uptick on this graph. But if we're just talking about regular old conventional crude oil, the stuff that made the economy go in the 20th century, we seem to be stuck in neutral. Well, why is that? It, it's because the oil industry itself is changing. Back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, it was the days of the Beverly Hillbillies. We could find oil in onshore areas and enormous pools in the ground. It was relatively cheap to drill for the stuff. And the amount of energy that we got back for every unit of energy that we invested in exploration and production was enormous, something on the rate of 50 to 100 to 1 energy profit ratio. I think the battery in my clicker is starting to go. Uh-oh, this is not good. Okay, here we go. So this is, what the, uh, this is what the oil industry looks like today, drilling in a mile or two of ocean water where a single exploratory well can cost a half a billion dollars and still come up dry. Uh, other new sources of oil include tar sands in Canada or, or tight reservoirs in in North Dakota. Yes, there's more oil there. We're not about to run out of oil, but we've, we've been extracting it using the low-hanging fruit principle. So we get the cheapest, best, and easiest stuff first and leave the 
more expensive, harder to get, more environmentally risky stuff for later. Well, guess what? It's later. Uh, Here's Australia's situation. As I'm sure you all know well, uh, your country was an oil exporter for a couple of years back in the 1980s, but as Australia consumes more oil these days, it has to import more oil. And of course, the line, uh, the queue of oil importing nations is is lengthening with each passing year. And there are some bullies who want to elbow their way to the front of that, that line. Let's go here. Ah. So there is a very strong link now between the economy and oil prices. The vertical gray bars are recessions in the U.S. since 1970. And as you'll see, there, are, uh, there have been several oil price spikes since 1970, and they correlate very well with the beginnings of these recessions. Now, uh, there have been recessions that aren't correlated with oil price increases, but the reverse is not true. There hasn't been a single occasion since 1970 when we've seen a rapid increase in oil prices when we haven't seen a recession. Most famously, obviously, just 2008, we saw the price of oil skyrocket up to almost $150 a barrel. And just a couple of months later in September 2008, of course, the famous GFC, Global Financial Crisis. Now, this is our situation in a nutshell. The oil industry now needs prices over $100 a barrel in order to justify bringing on a new barrel of oil's worth of production from unconventional sources, whether it's ultra-deep water, tar sands, or, or whatever. But meanwhile, we know from recent economic history, if the price of oil goes above $100 and stays there for very long, it starts to undercut economic growth. So just on the basis of this one factor alone, global oil prices, there's reason to think that we may be hitting some kind of fundamental limit, at least over the short term, until we can find something to replace oil. But that's, that's going to be hard to do for a while. And in fact, I'd argue that there, there aren't any good s- substitutes for oil from an economic standpoint on the horizon. But that's not the only thing that's happening. We're also seeing a global debt crisis. Now, what what is that about? Let me explain it to you with a story. The story starts in the early part of the 20th century. The problem then was overproduction. With cheap energy and powered assembly lines, it was possible to make consumer products in larger quantities than people were accustomed to buying them. So how to solve this problem? Well, one strategy that was hit upon was advertising, talking people into wanting more stuff. And there were subsidiary strategies like planned obsolescence, making stuff, making consumer products that would reliably break down before they really had to so that you'd have to replace them, or making consumer products so they change appearance every year and everyone would want to have the latest model. Now, this, this is an ad for a 1910 Studebaker. And a 1910 Studebaker cost about $900. Uh, That doesn't sound like much to pay for a new car today, but in 1910, $900 was a lot of money. It was much more money than people were accustomed to paying for, well, what was at that time a luxury item. So even though factories were capable of turning these things out by the 
thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, you know, it was hard for people to, to buy them. So how to solve that problem? Well, the, the solution was consumer credit, making it easier for people to go into debt to buy things they couldn't otherwise afford. Consume now, pay later. It was a way of stimulating economic growth. And of course, it was very successful. Another thing we did was to change the monetary system. In the early 20th century, there was a, a link between precious metals, gold and silver, and money. But there were, there were limits to the amount of gold and silver that could be brought to the market at any given time. So over the course of the 20th century, those links were severed. So that today, effectively, money is debt and debt is money. If you go to the bank and take out a loan for $10,000, the, the banker doesn't scurry off to the vault and look for $10,000 that somebody deposited there. No, the, as soon as the loan is approved, $10,000 appears as a deposit in your account. That money was created out of nothing. And when you pay back that $10,000 loan, the money disappears. It's, it's magic. It's, it's, it's very good a very good system for an economy that's growing rapidly because it means we can just create as much money as we actually need. Now, I want to descri describe for you the contents of a paper by economist Robert Gordon that, it's, that is kind of incendiary. It's making the rounds right now. It, bear with me. I'm, I'll describe it as, as quickly and simply as I can. He's suggesting that there have been three periods of economic growth during the industrial era. Now, the first segment was characterized by coal, steam power, and railroads. It took place during the 19th century, the early years of the 20th century. The second industrial period was characterized by oil, and the machines that use oil, like automobiles and airplanes, and also by electrification and the, and the machines that we invented to take advantage of electrification, obviously electric lights, but also uh, refrigerators and air conditioners and, and, and so on. Then the, there was a third period of industrial growth that started in the 1980s, and that was characterized by computers, eventually by cell phones and the internet. Now, Gordon argues on the basis of very clear data that it was the second of these industrial periods that brought by far the lion's share of economic growth and that by the 1980s, the, the introduction of oil-powered machinery and electrification and uh, electrical appliances, this this phase was reaching a point of diminishing returns in the industrialized countries. People had already bought their first automobile, their first air conditioner and vacuum cleaner and so on, and from then on it was just a matter of replacing ones that already existed. There was a very high level of consumption and economic activity, but it wasn't wanting to grow very much. Now, the, the third period that begins to take off in the 1980s with computers and all the rest, yes, it brings another bit of economic growth, but not nearly as much as took place earlier. Now, the significance of this is that many of us, I think, are relying upon technological innovation to maintain the same level of economic growth 
that we saw in the mid-20th century. If Gordon is right, then that may have been a one-off event, in fact. Oil, after all, is an amazingly powerful energy resource that has unique characteristics. It's energy dense, it's portable, it's unlike anything that we know that might be a substitute. And also, think of the, the, the power of the technologies that it unleashed, automobiles, air travel, and so on. Where is, where's the encore? It doesn't seem to be in the wings. Another thing started in the 1980s, and that was globalization. And it also had an impact because suddenly, as a result of container shipping and uh, satellite communications, it became possible for companies to outsource production. So workers in the already industrialized countries like the United States were now competing with workers on the other side of the planet. This had the effect of capping real wages for factory workers in already industrialized countries. So in the United States, the average hourly wage in inflation-adjusted terms for factory workers is no higher than it was in 1973. So by this time, consumerism is 70% of the economy. And if people don't actually have more money in their pockets, how are we going to keep the economy growing? Well, the answer hit upon was more debt. Make it even easier for people to take on even more debt. So credit cards, subprime mortgages, home home equity lines of credit, car loans, student loans, all the rest. If if you're taking out that $10,000 loan that we talked about earlier, that's an obligation for you to repay. But from the standpoint of the banker who's making the loan, that same loan is an asset. So as the economy is suffused with more and more debt, that means that there are more and more assets for the financial industry. And of course, securitization and derivatives also come into the picture around this time. So the the financial industry is actually growing at something like three times the rate of the rest of the economy. This is the lower blue line is, is US GDP and the red line is the amount of debt in the U.S. economy. And here we're not talking about government debt. We're primarily talking about household debt, corporate debt, and so on. So the financial industry is taking on more political clout within the economy as it's growing faster than manufacturing, faster than agriculture, and all the rest. It becomes a different kind of economy, in fact. Here's another picture of the same thing. And as you'll note, government debt actually was growing slower than household debt throughout this period right up until 2008. And what happens in 2008? With the housing crash, suddenly trillions of dollars of value disappear from the economy. And the central bank, the Federal Reserve, and the government step in as the lenders and borrowers and spenders of last resort in order to keep the economy from imploding upon itself. You have, have, have a similar situation here in Australia with levels of private debt compared to GDP. Now, you, you didn't have the same experience with, with uh, uh, the collapse of the property bubble but perhaps just wait a while. (laughs) 
Uh, these were the, the words of uh, my dear former president, George W. Bush, in September 24, 2008. He said, if we don't loosen up some money, this sucker could go down. Now, by the words, this sucker, I believe he meant to say the entire U.S. financial system, but by extension, that of the rest of the world as well. S some money was indeed loosened up. The, the Federal Reserve was recently audited as a result of an act of Congress for the first time in its history since 1913. And uh, it emerges that the Federal Reserve pumped $16 trillion into the global economy after 2008 in order to keep it afloat. $16 trillion is a lot of money. It happens to be more than the entire annual U.S. GDP. And yet, even with all of that, and the U.S. is deficit spending to this day at a rate of $100 billion a month. Now, of course, there's great hue and cry, great concern about that in Washington because, you know, you can't keep borrowing money forever. But if, if the government stops deficit spending, then where's the economic engine going to come from? It, it, the economy just isn't picking back up on its own. We hear about bailouts and uh, Greek bailouts, for example. Now, are, are the people of Greece being bailed out? Are the people of the U.S. being bailed out? No, what's actually happening is that uh, in order for the banks to receive the payments on their existing loans, see, they made, effectively made a bet with... Uh, with subprime mortgages and, and home equity lines of credit in the U.S. based on inflated house prices and, and in Europe with, with loans from banks in, in Germany and France to, to uh, countries like Greece, the bet was that there would be plenty of economic growth in the future and therefore it would be easy for these people or countries to, to pay back these loans. When, it, when that turns out not to be the case, when economic growth isn't happening and the payments can't be made, well, these loans turn out to be toxic assets for the banks. But rather than seeing the banks fail because they made bad bets and their, their, their assets turn out to be toxic, more money is created out of nothing by central banks and by governments to make the payments, but <clears throat> those loans are on the backs of the people. So the Greeks now are working six-day weeks and 13-hour days with the hope that their economy will start to grow some, somehow and they'll be able to pay back ever and le ever larger debt. It's not going to happen. We have hit limits to debt. You know, you know yourself if you take on so much debt that you can't make the payments and the bank doesn't want to loan you any more money, then you've hit the wall. That's what we're doing. That's what is going on in the very simplest terms right now across the world. But that's not all that's happening. Uh, of course, climate is changing, and I'm not going to argue that climate change is currently, right at this moment, choking off world economic growth. But I will argue that over the course of this decade, climate change is going to come in from the wings and deliver the coup de grace on world economic growth. We all know the story. Uh, global carbon emissions are increasing. 
uh, global temperatures are going up. Believe me, they are going up, yes. Um, And by how much? Well, we know with the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere right now that we will certainly see at least two degrees of warming. And just with the the current degree of of warming, amount of warming, we're already seeing extreme weather events like the the drought that's that's hitting my country uh, right now and causing billions of dollars worth of damage to crops throughout the American Midwest. We're also seeing just with the current amount of warming, the collapse of the Arctic uh, ice, the, the, the North Pole, is, is becoming ice-free over the course of just a few years. By Almost certainly by 2020, we will see an ice-free Arctic during summer months. And this is setting off a self-reinforcing feedback because as dark ocean water is opened up in summer months, that absorbs much more heat from the sun, which melts ice even sooner which opens up more water to create more heat to melt the ice even sooner and so on. So we're almost certainly looking at even more warming than, than, than two degrees. We don't know exactly how much, but another worrisome thing is that as the Arctic is warming, it's letting loose methane that's been trapped in ice either in, in uh, permafrost uh, on land or under the ocean beds. And over the short term, over a decade time span, methane is 10, excuse me, 100 times as powerful a greenhouse gas as CO2. So this is yet another self-reinforcing feedback that could bring us to, who knows, 10 degrees perhaps more. If we get to 10 degrees, if we get to 20 degrees, it's, it's game over for civilization as we know it. But long before we get to that stage, I believe we will see weather events extreme enough to effectively reverse economic growth as we've seen it over the past few decades. So we, we see these three things converging. Oil prices, limits to debt, and and climate change. Altogether, this is our situation. We're on a speeding train. It's going at a pretty fast clip, but it's never going quite fast enough for our taste. We want it to go faster with every passing year because we want more jobs. Governments want more tax returns so they can provide more services to the citizens. Investors want higher rates of return. So we want that train to speed up all the time. And of course, it's exhilarating until we get to the end of the road. And, and here we are. You know, nothing goes on, nothing grows forever on a finite planet. Think of it this way. Imagine a, a, a tiny hamster A baby hamster grows very rapidly for the first portion of its life. It actually doubles its body weight every week for the first several weeks. 
Now, suppose we had a magic hamster that could somehow continue doubling its body weight every week for one whole year, 52 doublings. How big a hamster would we have? (laughs) Would it be 50 kilos or 500 kilos? Well, the New Economics Foundation in London has done the math for us, and it turns out that it would be a 9 billion ton hamster. (laughs) Now, how can that be? How can just 52 doublings get us to such an extraordinary uh, value? Well, that's what exponential growth is all about. It's ex- it, it can be expressed in terms of doubling times. That's what we're trying to do with economic growth. It seems so innocuous, 2 or 3 or 5% per year. But think about what China's doing, growing its economy in recent years at 10% per year. What... What's the doubling time? Well, it, it's, math is very easy, actually. It turns out to be seven years. So after seven years, China's economy is twice as big. After 14 years, it's four times as big. After 21 years from the moment we started, China's economy is eight times as large. So how many times can we double China's economy before it runs into fundamental limits? No one knows the answer to that question, but it you know, one might start to wonder, is even one more doubling possible? Well, how, how does all of this relate to Australia? Um, it's not for me as an American to come to your country and tell you what you should do uh, with your country, but I think as an interested and sympathetic outside observer, it appears to me that that you all face a, a kind of crossroads. It would appear that you're banking your future on extracting and exporting resources to a growing Chinese economy. But does that really make sense as a long-term strategy? After all, China is facing some problems. China's economy is actually slowing down right now. And it's entirely possible that this decade, China will face real problems with maintaining its its economic growth. So Australia is part of a larger system. China makes its money largely by exporting manufactured goods to the United States, Europe, other importing nations. So as as those countries stagnate, then China exports less, which means China needs less iron ore, less coal, copper, all the things that Australia is, is exporting to China. That, so if China's demand goes down, that means that, that commodity prices soften. And that then in turn will have an impact on Australia's economy. This is already occurring. This is not hypothetical. Uh, when Martin Ferguson said that uh, the resources boom is over, of course, this w- <laughs> talk about a dangerous idea. Uh, he was immediately forced to retract and, and, and fudge and so on. But, you know, I, I think he was, he was telling us all something we need to know. Meanwhile, Australia's population is still growing very rapidly. And the 
Australian Bureau of Statistics is telling us that the, the nation's population could double or triple by the end of the century. Is this something to be concerned about? Well, maybe so. I mean, after all, if the economy is slowing down and maybe stagnating and maybe even contracting over the course of this century, and meanwhile, population is continuing to grow, that means that per capita consumption, per capita GDP, would plummet. Is that any kind of future for your children and grandchildren? Maybe it's time to start thinking about population. Maybe it's also time to start thinking about building resilience into your economy. Now, what are we talking about with resilience? Um, In many cases, resilience is the opposite of economic efficiency. Economic efficiency sounds like a good thing. After all, energy efficiency is almost always a good thing. Well, economic efficiency is a bit different. When I explain this to American audiences, I use use the following analogy. If you can grow corn cheaper in Iowa than anywhere else, then you should grow all of your corn in Iowa and nothing in Iowa except corn. Makes good economic sense. That's economic efficiency. But it's it makes for a less resilient food system because if the Iowa corn crop fails, as it's doing right now, then nobody has corn and Iowa has nothing. If you want a more resilient food system, then you need more dispersed inventories. You need a more localized food system rather than a globalized and centralized food system. It may not be as economically efficient, but in hard times, then... it'll be much easier for everyone to get by. Well, we are facing hard times. Let's be real about this. The, The 21st century is not going to look like the 20th century all over again. It's not the Jetsons. It's not the Beverly Hillbillies. It's going to be a time of belt tightening. It's going to be a time of retrenchment. Now, that doesn't mean it's the end of the world. We've had hard economic times before. And we've, and we've gotten through them. But we, it will go much better for us if we prepare, if we understand what's happening and why and make the necessary adjustments. Getting off growth will go much easier for us, for example, if we get off of GDP. GDP, most economists will acknowledge, is a perverse indicator. All it's telling us is that we're spending more money, but we may be spending on money, spending money on things that make us miserable. F- why not adopt indicators like a genuine progress indicator or gross national happiness, as the, the people of Bhutan have, have done, that actually gives us useful information about the quality of our, our household lives and, and community lives, the quality of our environment, and so on. How about developing alternative currencies so that if, if one major currency like the U.S. dollar or the Australian dollar has, has a few hiccups along the way, we have, some, we have some alternatives to that, perhaps a currency that's not based on, on interest-bearing debt. Maybe we need to think, rethink how corporations are organized. You know, right now most corporations are organized so that Uh, their first priority is returns for shareholders. So corporations have to grow or die. And if a corporation stops growing, then 
then it's, it's uh, likely to be taken over by another and liquidated and, and, and so on. How about family-owned or worker-owned businesses that can continue to provide work for their labor force, can continue to pro- provide good products for their customers without necessarily having, having to grow year after year? And as we do these things, we should be thinking about what we're going to prioritize. You know, do, do baby bonuses make sense <laughs> under these circumstances? I don't think so. Uh, you know, we, we do need alternative energy sources, solar and wind, but they will provide a different kind of energy from what we, we've been used to. They are intermittent sources. The sun isn't always shining. The wind isn't always blowing. They're not going to support the same kind of consumer growing economy that we've seen during the last few decades. So as we transition to renewable energy sources, which we certainly must do as fast as we can, we have to expect to have less energy and especially less energy for transportation. We will be less mobile in the future. Nobody is planning on electric airliners to ferry hundreds of people from continent to continent. It's not going to happen. And if we use biofuels for uh, you know, Boeing 747s, that fuel is going to be much more expensive than the kerosene that we're using right now we will be less mobile. So let's plan on it. We can make this transition. We should be building or retrofitting our buildings so that they don't require external energy sources like the, the passive house movement in Germany is, is doing. And finally, we, we've created a food system that depends upon fossil fuel inputs for pesticides, fertilizers, herbicides, and so on. That's a food system that's almost designed to fail under circumstances that are entirely foreseeable. So we need to relocalize our food systems and extract fossil fuels from every stage of it. Finally, we need to rethink economics itself. Economics as a discipline grew up during this anomalous period, brief eye blink of time in human history when we had rapid fossil-fueled economic growth. And so economists internalized some ideas about the world that I think are pretty unrealistic, like the idea that the entire natural world is a, is a subset of the economy. It's just a, a pile of resources that we extract, turn into consumer goods, which then become waste, which goes, goes away, wherever away is. But the reality, of course, is exactly the opposite. The entire human economy is a subset of the ecosystem, always has been and always will be. So why don't we design our human economy to function like a healthy ecosystem? We have to understand that growth in population and consumption is fundamentally unsustainable. And when I say unsustainable, I don't mean insufficiently eco-groovy. I mean it can't go on. Now, obviously, it can go on for a few decades because it has, but not much longer. So we should plan for how big an economy nature can support over the long term and how big a population. Renewable resources have to be harvested at less than the rate of natural replenishment. How obvious, and yet we're, we're flouting this principle with regard to forests and fisheries 
and non-renewable resources have to be recycled wherever possible, and the rate at which we extract them from the Earth's crust always has to decline if we're going to aim for a condition that's sustainable. Very simple principles. Now, can we follow those principles and still build one of these? I don't know, but if these are the most important invention in all of human history, as we seem to all have agreed, that we can't live without them, well, shouldn't we be thinking about how we can make them, not from depleting, scarce, non-renewable resources using slave labor and, and lots of fossil fuel transport in between, shouldn't we be thinking about how we can make them from recycled and renewable materials using well-paid local labor? Can we do it? I don't know, but we should try. You know, if, if you're starving, a little more food can be a very good thing. But we in the industrialized world have gotten to the point where it's like, you know, you're full, but you're having another hamburger. It's not good for you. Uh, and it doesn't feel good. And in fact, economic growth is no longer feeling that good to us. There are all kinds of psychological studies showing we in the Western world, even in the industrialized parts of China, people are miserable because of the pace of life. So can we back off on the accelerator and actually be happier, healthier, and better off? There's a lot that we have traded away for the sake of rapid economic growth. That means that if we aim to stabilize our economies in a sensible way, downsizing the financial system in relation to manufacturing and agriculture, reorganizing our priorities, we can be happier. We can, be, we can live more fulfilled, integrated lives. Well, that's what we should concentrate on. That's what we should aim for. And if we do the future may look actually brighter. Thank you very much. I'll just put my... Uh my mobile phone down here in my iPad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Richard. That was very interesting and highly illuminating and a lot of dangerous ideas in there. Um, I, we have time now for Q&A. Um, so if you do have a question, please make your way to the microphones which are being set up, one just over there and then one at the top. And, uh, but I'm going to kick off. Um, Richard, do you think, in your view... Uh, the United States will find its way out of this current economic situation that it finds itself in? Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to answer with a resounding yes, but I can't. <laughs> 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 I, I think the U.S. and actually most of the world is, is going to be uh, driven to adaptation by crisis. Um, and uh, the, the current political discussion in, in the U.S. about the economy and, and about energy about our future is, is pretty abysmally uh, wrong-headed. Uh, it, but, you know, it's hard to find a, a politician anywhere who's willing to stand up and say, hey, look, we've, we've had enough economic growth. Let's, let's rethink our direction. Uh, but, you know, when crisis comes, we're almost 
forced to think dangerous ideas. That, that happened in 2008. Uh, we, we saw magazines like The Economist and Time Magazine suddenly questioning capitalism. I mean, <laughs> who would have thunk, right? right? So, uh, you know, as, as crises re- recur, I think it's really important that, that we contextualize them, take advantage of them. A crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Well, it's in, and, and also the, what you said before, that, which I actually thought was quite a dangerous idea, was was the notion that uh, to downsize the economy, uh, you know, in, in looking at shrinking manufacturing, manufacturing here obviously has been very, very, at the for, very much at the forefront of the national debate. It's a dangerous idea. I think it would take a lot of political uh, courage right. to actually step up and say something yeah. like that. Well, see, what we need to do first of all is downsize the financial industry. And we can, we can do that by... <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> we, we, could, we could do that nationally or globally mm. with a tax on all financial transactions, right? And then use that money to, to help households make the transition and also to, to build up the, our renewable energy infrastructure and, and help society as a whole move into a, a survivable future. All right, let's take some questions from the floor. I can see someone upstairs. Please. Um. Thanks. Uh, in your discussion, I don't recall you addressing um, the globalization of the uh, movement of capital and knowledge to places like China and India and other developing countries as a cause of some of the changes that you are describing. And you also didn't address whether developing countries have still got a right to anticipate and demand growth within their countries. Can you address that? Thanks. Sure. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting that the end of growth is an option. What I'm, what I'm saying is, is it's happening and it will happen regardless of what we do. Now, the less industrialized countries, I think, can adapt best by completely leapfrogging the whole fossil-fueled industrial paradigm of automobiles and highways and, and so on, and go straight to a more uh, to a, a localized renewable energy-based economy. Uh, China, I think, is making an enormous mistake by becoming the world's largest automobile market and building highways at a frenzied pace. Uh, it's not only is it unsustainable; I think it's going to lead the country off off the cliff. So does, do less industrialized countries have the right to grow further? Well, they, certainly they have the right to, to make life better for their people. How they do that, I think it's, it's, it, it's, it's going to be a matter of, of using uh, you know, some intelligence and strategy and not just trying to emulate the U.S. and Australia and what, uh, what these countries have done over the course of the 20th century because that's, that's a path to, uh, uh, to failure. Down here on the floor. Yeah, thank you. Um, so wonderful presentation with a lot of data, but um, I think that uh, just few speakers around the world can tackle the fact that, at least for some of us, this system, uh, capitalism or free enterprise system, etc., doesn't work at all because it's focused on money and is a money-based economy, basically. And some of the speakers just speak about uh, good solutions, like uh, we have to do things that make us happy, etc. 
And um, so why don't you speakers uh, generally speak about something like uh, the economy as we know it now, uh, the free enterprise system doesn't work at all. We should get out of this idea and then find something else, like, for example, resource-based economy. And mm. if you know, uh, what's your thought about that guy's movie? Yeah. You. Well, you know, I, I generally try to uh, avoid the word capitalism simply because as soon as you use it, people think they know what you're talking about. But at least in my country, in the United States, it, it results in an enormous amount of, of uh, confusion, actually. Because people think that if, if, you're, if you're against capitalism somehow, then you must be for state socialism or, or uh, communism. You know, I don't think that any of the economic systems of the 20th century will, will actually serve us in the 21st century. We're going to have to reinvent the economy. Now, whether that means abolishing private ownership of all means of production, uh, I, I, I kind of doubt if, if that's really going to be the way we go. It certainly uh, wasn't, wasn't the path to health and happiness for, for millions of people in, in, the, uh, in the, uh, the socialist world during the 20th century. The Zeitgeist movie, I think, has some very good ideas, but uh, you know, there, there, there are a number of organizations that have come up with, with I think, very good critiques of our current economic system and, and alternative plans, and, and that's only one of many that I would, I would point to. Um, so I'm just in year 10 studying commerce, so if the question's a bit off topic, um, sorry if it doesn't make sense, but um, is our addiction to cost-effective um, economic growth a plan, uh, a path, sorry, to deconstruct, uh, de deconstruction of what it was designed to create? I'm sorry, I don't... Yeah. Could you, could you restate that? So, is our addiction to cost-effective growth a path to destruction in, um, of what it was designed to create? Right, okay. Well, yeah, I, in a sense, I guess, I guess so. Uh, the whole idea of economic growth was to make us richer and happier. Uh, and it has made some people certainly a lot richer. And... And if you look at GDP per capita, as we saw in the very first slide, we do live in the wealthiest societies that have ever existed in all of human history. I mean, an ordinary Australian or North American lives like a king or queen in energy terms, in terms of personal consumption compared to people in, in, in previous centuries and millennia. But are, are we happier as a result? That is another question. Uh, and I, I, I think... One, you know, once basic human needs are satisfied, once we have enough energy to keep ourselves warm when, when it's cold outside and cook our food, uh, once those basics are covered and we have enough to eat and, and, and shelter and so on, then there's not that much correlation between further consumption and, and satisfaction in life. So uh, economic growth, I think, right now actually is undermining the very things that it, it was designed to, to foster. Richard, I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, obviously, Australia is focusing very much on finite resources, uh, digging things out of the ground and exporting them to China, as yeah. you mentioned in your speech. And obviously, they do run out. Uh, where, in your view, then, should the focus be for, um, you know, the government and... Uh, and, and 
and uh, other sort of people in those positions? Well, uh, Australia is going to have to plan its economy for the longer term, right? So that means uh, developing a, a, an internal economy that can, that, that can function in, with a, a resilience over, over decades and, and we should be planning for a, a society that can persist for centuries. You know, right now, Australia is a boomtown economy. And we know about boom towns in the United States. You know, you, 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 there are ghost towns all over the American West where there was a silver mine back in the 19th century and, and, a, and a saloon. And the saloon was prospering, you know, as long as the silver mine. And then the silver mine started to peter out and the whole town just dries up and blows away. Well, what's, you know, what's the long-term plan for its long-term sustainable agriculture? For example, Australia has very poor, thin soils. So that means that if, if, you're, if a long-term plan would be to build topsoil rather than mining topsoil, which is what industrial agriculture typically does. So Australia should be thinking about the, really the basics of topsoil, water, food production, and making its cities, its buildings to last and not to require external energy inputs. Australia has the potential for, lots of potential for renewable energy. So developing that rather than m continuing to mine the fossil energy sources that are the, the, the energies of, of the 20th century. Should Australia allow foreign uh, ownership of its agricultural and arable land? <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one, uh, one has to think that that's a very bad idea. I, I see a few people wanting to clap. Please, please make your way to the microphone. Uh, two, two questions. Leaving aside, leaving aside the climate considerations, a lot of serious commentators are talking about very recent finds with natural gas and fracking technology and, yeah. and some sort of oil finds that you, you alluded to. And there's talk of uh, America becoming energy independent within a decade. Does that, does that change at least one of your, the sort of points of consideration that yeah. you raised? Second question is, in light of your comments and the CSIR report you mentioned, the, the sceptics of your sort of viewpoint seem to use the sort of Club of Rome and the limits of growth, and there's a person's name that comes to mind, Paul someone as, as almost a weapon against this viewpoint Paul as if Ehrlich. that's been totally discredited right. and yet, yet that, that would stand in complete yeah. contradiction to what, what you're putting okay. in. Okay, I'm going to have to answer this very quickly because we're mm. running out of time. First of all, uh, the fracking gas and unconventional oil in the U.S. is being wildly oversold. Uh, we already have a, a, a study on our website, postcarbon.org, free PDF download. You can look at it, 75-page study by one of North America's uh, principal geologists showing that, in fact, what's happening is um, that the, the, the natural gas prices have been driven down by a fury of drilling that happened in 2006, 2007, 2008. Now, uh, the, these new gas wells, and it's true of, of the unconventional oil wells as well, uh, are, uh, they deplete very rapidly. So you drill a new oil well in January. By December, the rate of production from that well has already fallen by 40%. So you have to drill again and again and again. So if you're drilling thousands and thousands of wells, then you can keep production 
flat or maybe even rising, but they're drilling the sweet spots first. So what we've seen so far is the best it's ever going to get. And as time goes on, even over the course of the next two, three, four, five years, we will see the end of the sweet spots, the the decline in the existing fields, and uh, our our forecast on the basis of very good data is that uh, U.S. oil production, rather than than U.S. becoming self-sufficient in oil, will actually begin, begin declining again within the next two to three years. Uh, now, yeah, Paul Ehrlich and, uh, and limits to growth. You know, th- this, this is all a public relations strategy on the part of, you know, the, the growth-based economists. And uh, Paul Ehrlich, for example, had a famous bet with uh, the, the economist Julian Simon. And Simon bet that commodity prices would, would fall Ehrlich bet they would, that they would rise, and Julian Simon won the bet. So the, the economy can grow forever, we conclude from that. Well, it was just a matter of timing. You know, if they'd made the same bet uh, five or ten years later, Paul Ehrlich would have won. Commodity prices have generally increased since 2000, partly because energy prices have gone up, partly because, you know, we're drilling... Uh, digging deeper for lower quality ores all the time, and the way we do that is with more and more energy. And if energy get, gets more expensive, it undermines the whole process. So, yeah, I mean, uh, basically, the limits to growth people and Paul Ehrlich were right. The data is in their favor. That's all we have time for. Uh, that's, I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> oh, all right, you've twisted my arm. Thank One you. more question. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. It's all about makeup, obviously. Um, very quickly, uh, it's a brave policymaker or government who controls growth. The only example I can see that's been successful is the one-child one policy in China, which is so culturally kind of against what we could possibly cope with. I'm just sort of putting that out there. Is that, is that what governments, is that the kind of brave step governments and policymakers start, need to start taking? Well, with regard to po- population, many countries have made uh, effective efforts to reduce the rate of population growth. Uh, and in most cases, that involves actually doing things to raise the social status of women, especially in poor countries. Uh, so, yeah, if, if we're talking about GDP, it's true there are very few countries that have deliberately put the brakes on growth. But with regard to population, it's a different story. And in fact, the countries that have taken steps to reduce the rate of population growth have seen their economies improve as a result. If you have a, a, a country, poor country with large family si- average family size, uh, high rate of population growth, then a typical family spends all its income on food and shelter, has nothing left over at the end of the day for education for the children, for formula, formation of a small family business or anything like that. And so they're mired in poverty generation after generation. It's only when the rate of population growth begins to slacken off that there's the possibility then of, of improving people's lives. So this... I'm sorry. <clears throat> the aging of the population is... Uh, I, it's, it's a problem that, it, that I believe has been overstated. Now, once you have rapid population growth, 
there are going to be implications all the way down the line, but it's not something you can continue doing forever, so we've got to make plans for how we're going to get off of that, that curve. Please join me in thanking Richard Hunnebuck. I just, just before you go, I just wanted to let you know, if you do have questions, Richard will be um, signing his book in the Western Foyer. And also, Richard, was there anything else? Yeah, I wanted to make, give, offer a brief commercial. Uh, many of you saw a little uh, flyer on your seats or next to your seats. Uh, there's an Australian composer named Chris Spike. I happen to be a, uh, a rather enthusiastic amateur violinist myself, and I've, I've played some of his, his compositions. He, there will be a a performance of, of his compositions here at the Opera House uh, in a few weeks, and I would, I'd recommend that you go. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. <laughs>